We solemnly swear we're up to no good. Hi, I'm Gary Roby. I'm Victoria Laguna. And we're the hosts of Harry Potter Minute, the fan podcast where we overanalyze the Harry Potter movies one magical minute at a time. Join us as we argue about whether or not McGonagall would meow at Dumbledore. She wouldn't. As we ponder just how much Harry's fortune is worth. Just $40. As we guess how much mileage one gets out of an Ollivander wand. 100,000 jinxes. As we detail the ins and outs of Hogwarts Castle. It's only a model. Join us Monday through Friday, only from DuelingGenre.com. Mischief Managed. Dueling Genre. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Joseph Drowski, and this week we'll be discussing the ensemble cast of Brooklyn Nine-Nine, and to help with the discussion is someone who knows the show much better than I do, producer Andrew. Welcome, Andrew. Hello. So, uh, you've seen all of Brooklyn Nine-Nine, is that correct? Yes. Um, it's available on Hulu, so anyone can can catch up to it and... Watch those episodes if you have that particular streaming service. Um, I watched most of it, and then um, my wife and I watched it together sometime after we were married, and I think we were coming off of Parks and Rec. It's like, well, what's another sitcom to fill the the void? And we had already watched Frasier, and so I think we settled on Brooklyn Nine-Nine at one point. <laughs> right. I have seen five episodes now, I believe. The two <laughs> for this episode we're recording right now with this podcast. And then uh, like a, a week ago, I saw, I, I saw it was on Hulu. I'm like, ah, oh, maybe I should start watching that for my treadmill show. And I've watched three episodes and enjoyed them. I just, you know, that was very recently and I have not yet. Right. <laughs> binged through the rest of the series. Cause there's, you know, a hundred plus episodes at this point, I think somewhere around a hundred episodes of the <laughs> show. So I've seen about five which if there's about 100 episodes, about 5% of the show. I've enjoyed what I've seen. Uh, the two episodes you selected, this was you and your your wife, Kestra, uh, picked the two episodes we're going to be talking about tonight. Yeah, we were trying to settle on something that was strong. And so we we picked one that we remembered from early on that had a good stable introduction to the characters um, mm-hmm. and kind of the the sense you get with each of them. Who, who are you dealing with? And then um, one from later on, which is uh, part of a, a running Halloween tradition. That they have. I love it when shows develop those kind of like annual rites of passage that they're uh, they're going to have to do. Uh, yeah, and so day. for for Brooklyn Nine Nine, they went with Halloween. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, Brooklyn Nine Nine, for any listeners who are unaware, is a sitcom set in a police station, and the series began airing in 2013. It was created by Dan Gore and Michael Schur, and it stars. And I'm just going to list the whole cast because we're going to talk about this whole ensemble. I think this episode. It stars Andy Samberg as Jake Peralta, Andre Bauer Brower as Captain Raymond Holt, Stephanie Beatrice as Rosa Diaz, Terry Cruz as Terry Jeffords, Melissa Fumero as Amy Santiago. Joe Lo Truglio as Charles Boyle, Chelsea Peretti as Gina Lanetti, <laughs> Dirk Blocka, Blocker as Michael Hitchcock, and Joel McKinnon Miller as Norm Scully. And we're discussing two episodes. We're going to do season one, episode 16, The Party, which was written by Gil Ozeri and Gabe Liedman and directed by Michael Engler. And in this episode, the cops from the precinct are invited to the captain's birthday party at his house. And it's the classic two different social strata are meeting <laughs> like the captain's uh, his husband and his social friendships versus his work friendships coming together where no one else knows each other. And there's just that one central point of contact and that party goes poorly. I'll just say that <laughs> for the quick summary. <laughs> and we'll also be discussing the episode called Halloween three, which was written by David Phillips and directed by Michael McDonald. And this tells a story of an escalating heist war between Captain Holt and directive Peralta. Is that like, this is the third chapter. Yeah, That's their, that's so. their Halloween tradition is a heist war. Have they done that every season? Yes. Uh, in some form, I I believe. Um, right, so I, may... I mean, in the, in the third season, they are getting into their their third one. Okay, so I may have to go and watch all the Halloween heist wars. <laughs> um, so some trivia about uh, Brooklyn Nine Nine. Um, I just want to like I just put this in the trivia. So Michael Sure, <laughs> he <laughs> co-created Brooklyn Nine Nine. Do you know what else he's been involved in? 
Uh, I know he's been involved in The Good Place. I think he's the creator and showrunner for The Good Place. And a major mover and shaker on Parks and Rec. And I believe that translates to being a major mover and shaker on The Office. Yes, he was uh, behind the scenes in The Office. I think he was eventually a producer. Uh, I don't think he started there. Let's see if if it says. But but like a writer or director for for some episodes of The Office. And then the executive producer uh, by the end. Uh, okay. And he also appeared in The Office. Do you know his role on The Office? No. He is Dwight's brother, Moe's, Moe Schrute. <laughs> <laughs> Which he, uh, I, I remember this. I, I wrote a chapter on The Office a couple years ago for a book. I, I don't remember a whole lot of it, but I remember um, somehow I, I went down this rabbit hole about Moe's and uh, Michael Schur never wrote himself in as Moe's because he didn't like being in front of the camera. But the other writers loved bringing Moe's in and were like, walk into the writer's room and be like, I just wrote a scene of you running next to a car like a dog. <laughs> <laughs> just just taunt him with that. Uh, yeah, so he was a writer, producer, actor, and executive producer on The Office. He got he started writing for Saturday Night Live. And as he said, he, is, um, he was a co-creator of Parks and Rec, Co, uh, co-creator of Brooklyn Nine-Nine and creator of The Good Place. So that's a that's a fair amount of sitcom, uh, you know, that's, I mean, <laughs> yeah, those are some there. of the the highest caliber sitcoms of the last 10 years. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so so well done, Michael Schur. And uh, <laughs> there's The Good Place, the podcast, which I listened to with the behind the scenes stuff. And I remember I was listening to it and Michael Schur as the creator, he was on one episode and they just went on a, a tangent about Ted Danson and uh, Sam Malone and Cheers. And this is when I was working on the book for for Cheers, uh, cultural history. And I was like, oh, I must transcribe everything that he just said. And, yeah. And say, Michael Schur, the creator of The Good Place, as well as co-creator of X, Y, and Z, says this about Ted Danson and Cheers. Um, some other trivia about Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Uh, Andy Samberg won a Golden Globe for Best Actor, and the series won for Best Comedy in 2014. Andre Brower has been nominated for Supporting Actor three consecutive times. The last three Emmy Awards he's been nominated, but he has not won yet, which, as far as I'm concerned, is a crime against humanity, because he is fantastic. Though, it's also worth noting, he has been nominated in his career for 10 Emmys and has won three already. So he has, like, for previous work, he already has three Emmy Awards. Um, so so he is substantially recognized <laughs> yes yeah for his work particularly for homicide life on the street uh that tv series hmm. um i think is what what he won for but yeah he's he's been nominated a lot and his deadpan delivery in this in, in brooklyn 99 in the few episodes i've seen is um just fantastic comedic gold and then when you uh pair that it's it's almost like um the writers of fraser when they said we realized if you put fraser and niles who are the same together you can get a different kind of comedy whereas everyone traditionally thinks contrast is where you're going to find comedy you put two of the same and you can actually mine a lot of comedy and then they are the writers for avengers uh realized oh if we put tony stark and dr strange these are very similar characters just one science one's magic but there's a lot of good comedy that can rise out of having the same characters together when you have andre brower mm-hmm. and mark evan jackson who has made a career out of deadpan comedy delivery uh put together as, as husbands on the show uh there, there's a lot to love in that comedy performance mm-hmm. uh, brooklyn 99 is one of the rare shows that has switched networks fox canceled it after five seasons but nbc picked it up for a sixth season after there was a uh, widespread fan outcry online and a lot of like save the show petitions however it may not be so much the save the show petitions as the fact that sure pitched the show to NBC, but they passed and then Fox picked it up. And one of the executives at NBC said his biggest regret was that NBC didn't have Brooklyn nine, nine. And then it's like, Oh, we can. <laughs> yeah. They, they, they picked it up uh, in, I think less than 24 hours of the official announcement that Fox had canceled it. Yeah. Like so it, 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 it couldn't, it, it could hardly be a petition and Netflix. Uh, and then, and then NBC had it. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the next morning after, you know, everyone was upset and Twitter was was ablaze with, but Brooklyn Nine-Nine is so great. And then and then the next morning, NBC was like, we have it. We'll, we'll be making another one, guys. Yeah. And again, it was like there was one specific executive who, who was in the room when they passed on it and had always regretted that decision. It's like, oh, I get a mulligan. That's very rare. <laughs> a- according to TV Tropes, it's the NBC president, Bob Greenblatt. Yes, Greenblatt. 
Um, so he I, was he was the one who really said, "Is like I always wanted it. <laughs> now it's mine." Uh, Chelsea Peretti and what's her character's name again? She's the the uh, receptionist or secretary. Uh, Gina Gina Linetti. Gina Linetti. Okay, she and Andy Samberg went to elementary school together. Um, which what mm-hmm. an odd bit of trivia. Peretti wrote uh, for Parks and Rec. She was never in front of the camera in Parks and Rec, but she wrote. Um, which of course now we've. I think she's she the- is um she's in one scene one time. Oh, okay, well as we said, she the is she Schur she show. plays like a a part of the press. Yeah, uh, th- that's a Michael Schur show, and and often creators get kind of a repertoire of actors that they pull on a lot. So I'm sure that's where they they first met and he pulled her into uh brooklyn 99 and then this is this doesn't mean anything but i just in looking her up i saw that her brother co-founded buzzfeed and the huffington post which was an unexpected bit of trivia for for that family there's a lot going on in that wow family. uh yeah Andrew, that's uh that's a big one yeah <laughs> as i said uh you know the show better than i do so was there any trivia that you want to make sure we we covered uh just that you can look forward in your treadmill time to seeing some, well, I'm going to say one very good and one basically classic uh, pregnancy hiding mechanisms. Oh, okay. Well, can you tell me? I It's been established on this podcast. One thing I love. Uh, yeah. Okay. Some things I do love. Uh, let's just list some of the, the, the side views of buildings illustrated in comic books when they like show the Avengers secret base or the X-Men or, or, you know, whatever it is where they do the cutout version of, of a base. I love those maps at the beginning of fantasy novels. I'm all over those. I will stop and take those in. Uh, and also sitcoms, particularly sitcoms, but also dramas. But, but when they have to hide that an actress is pregnant, the, the, the hoops they will leave through uh, in order to hide those. Uh, I'm, I'm always there for that. So what are some of the methods that are employed on Brooklyn Nine-Nine? Which actress is pregnant? I don't know. There's so, some actresses on this. In, in, in the third season, so the, the Halloween episode season um, that we watched, I don't know how prominent it is in the episode. I wasn't looking for it, but I feel like it must not have been prominent at all. Um, Melissa Fumero, so uh, Amy Santiago, that cool. actress. Uh, is pregnant in the third season. So could have been pregnant during the Halloween episode. Uh, and it, apparently they, they use some props throughout the season and she's often carrying boxes, that sort of thing. Yes. And then um, towards the end, they deal with it by having Amy and Santiago go undercover in prison as a pregnant woman. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That may be one of my favorite versions ever of how how we're going to deal with the pregnancy (laughs) and then in the fourth season uh gina linetti uh chelsea peretti is pregnant and they go with mostly the the classics uh a lot of baggy sweaters and coats tightly framing on her this is the one that my wife and i kestra and i noticed during the filming it's like oh She's pregnant. She's definitely right. pregnant. They're, like, she's always behind her desk. Yes. Yeah. A lot of time is like sitting really low behind her desk. Yeah. Shelly Long on Cheers spent quite a while in uh, the, the third season standing at the back of the bar. Like like behind. So for viewers, you're just, you know, seeing her shoulder and, and head. Uh, and, and she's delivering her lines from back there um, when they were trying to cover it. And then uh, uh, the other way Cheers tried to cover it was they, they sent her character to Europe and they filmed all the scenes of her and Frasier in Europe and then just splice those into plot into episodes that hadn't been written yet. They just filmed a whole lot of, of their, their scenes that could be, you know, you're going to take five minutes of this episode. We don't know what the episode is yet. Here you go. Go film it. And then they, they, they worked with that footage uh, and she just wasn't on set <laughs> for the, the last chunk of the, this, this season. Yeah. And then, um, and you can imagine this very well with her character. Sometimes they just have her stand in weird poses. Mm-hmm. Yes. As, as um, a distraction tactic. Right. Yeah. It's like if she just stands like this, we're not going to notice her belly. <laughs> yes. And that fits the character. Yeah. From what I've seen, again, uh, I'm only five episodes in. So I, I'm like still in that. Uh, I'm getting to know the characters. I, and so like particularly like when I jumped to season three, I could tell some of the jokes were based on not not like storylines that I missed, but just like familiarity with the characters that I didn't have yet. Um, you know, yeah, there's. Had, Certain character dynamics are established by then. Mm-hmm. Uh, still, I laughed a lot at the episodes that you picked. So I, I 
respect the the two that we're we're covering today but before we get to the plot summaries of those episodes listeners we want to thank you for joining us for listening to this episode and want to thank those of you who support us on patreon if you'd like to support us financially we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least a dollar per month all supporters on patreon at any level receive access to special quick casts which are shorter episodes in which we break down newly released films and trailers and give updates on our fantasy box office all patrons who support us with five dollars per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss now, Andrew, you have written the summary for these two episodes. Yes. And writing I summaries... been a very awkward moment right now. In the <laughs> record. I think the only time that happened, you and Todd had both written the summary. That's true. That did happen to us once. Fortunately, it was in the favorable version. Yeah. Um, and let me say, this is the first time I've had to do a summary for comedic TV episodes. That's hard. Takes all the funny out of it. It does. Yeah. Describing the plot when so much of the comedy is from the camera editing for, to establish timing, like for looks between characters mm-hmm. and particular line deliveries. Yeah, it's it's not. So uh, it, listeners, if, if you like Andrew said, this is available on Hulu. I completely understand if you just hit pause right now. And, and if you have a Hulu subscription, you go pull up these two episodes and then come back for our discussion after. That's that's a very valid thing to do at this moment. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And I think I did a lot better at it by the time I got to the second episode. I think the first episode I maybe wasn't as good <laughs> at writing this summary well, I think and knowing how to one, do it. The first one is a bit more plot heavy, so I think that's fine if you if you were leaning in a little yeah. bit more to that. So, um, do we need to establish anything about the characters, or do you think we're... Uh, uh, let's, like, give, like, a one-sentence description of each one of these characters. So, uh, like, clearly, okay. the, the one who came out of Saturday Night Live and was billed as the big star of the show is Andy Samberg, who is Jake Peralta, who uh, I would just, I, I guess I would describe from what I've seen as the uh, lazy but competent detective. Is that accurate? Yeah, I think that's, I think that's the, the best way to describe him. He's, he's really quite good. And he's pretty arrogant about it, but he also doesn't really work that hard to be as good as he is. Yeah, he doesn't he doesn't like the paperwork at all. He's not terribly professional. Um, in, in, yeah, in the yes, office. that's a big part of it. Uh, but but he does have the like the skill set to be a great detective. And he I mean, in the classic TV uh, crime show, he solves every case he has. Right. <laughs> like, yeah. I, or or. There's the one that keeps coming back. Right. I love it on um, like long running crime shows like Bones or uh, or Elementary, where it's, it's like we're we're seven seasons in and suddenly they're like the higher ups don't like your methods. But they have a 100 percent success rate. They like what? Is not <laughs> they, they have been very good. <laughs> <laughs> Who cannot love the results that they are getting? You just leave them alone. Yes. Um, uh, and so he's he's typically counterpointed with. Uh, captain Raymond Holt who came in at the beginning of the first season as their new captain and is very strict, very stoic, very deadpan um, and pushes him to be at least a little more professional because the captain and a little is less lazy professional. Like, uh, so, yeah. so the captain is uh, like they, they've talked about several times in his backstory in the, in the episodes I've seen uh, he, he's gay and he was known to be gay in New York police force in the seventies, eighties. <laughs> in addition, in addition to being black. Yes. Uh, and so he had to be more professional and more successful than everyone around him to have any chance of ever becoming a captain. Uh, and so he still is more professional. <laughs> than, yeah. Than and, and very intense. Yes. Uh, so uh, then there's Rosa Diaz, who who is, is kind of off-puttingly serious, but differently. Uh, than the yes, and and like threateningly violent, just in her persona. Yes, I think. Yeah, I think that works. Um, Amy Santiago is trying to please the captain. She wants to be his favorite. <laughs> yeah, she's just the the classic kind of suck up character who is also a good detective, right? Yes. Um, also, I mean, they're they're all generally speaking really good at being detectives and, and good at their, their job. They have a good su- success rate from what I've seen. Um, though, maybe not the two kind of smallest side ones, the Hitchcock and Scully. They're the we'll, two older. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll do them last. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, uh, Gina Linetti is captain Holt's secretary or, or executive assistant. Um, so the non cop in, in the entire show. <laughs> okay. And she is just weird and out there. Like she is yeah. uh, the strange character in the sitcom uh, that. Yeah. Like, uh, it, it kind of defies 
description in that way. Terry. Uh, Terry. Terry is the second in command. So he's the sergeant for the crew. Uh, and he is Terry Cruz. So he's very big, very muscular, very fit. Very loud, and, but also super nice. Yeah, like very loud, very nice and and sweet and gentle, um, emotionally vulnerable in a lot of situations. Um, like he there are no threats to his masculinity, generally speaking, on the show. And so it is okay for him to be emotionally vulnerable. Right. And I I love Terry Crews. Like the more I find out about Terry Crews, the more fascinated I am with him as a celebrity. Yes. And a lot of Terry Crews is brought into his character. Now, um, doing doing art, um, having the family with the minivan and, and all of those things. You know, things that are very often considered non-traditional or, or non-masculine traditionally. But it's that's Cher- Terry Crews's brand. Is this right. non-toxic masculinity? Uh, now, do you know was Terry Crews always going to play this character they named Terry? I'm not sure. Okay, because like on, um, on Cheers, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, on Cheers, Norm was originally named George in the script, and then when they uh, officially cast George Went, they changed the character to Norm because they didn't want it the same. Then they wrote this new character named Woody, and then they cast Woody Harrelson, and like whatever, we're just keeping it the same. But it, Woody was not named for Woody; it just happened. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but with Terry. And and how close those two characters are. I was wondering if it was deliberate. Yeah, I my gut would would suggest that it was probably deliberate. But really, the show is built so strongly on the characters that these actors are able to perform most effectively that even if they didn't have him in mind for the pilot, by the time they're writing the second episode, they must be, you know, writing Terry Crews. OK, uh, let's see. In, in a lot of Charles? ways. I mean, oh, yeah, Charles is. um Jake's best friend, and he is very eager to be Jake's best friend. <laughs> He's kind of, I mean, I, there's a little bit of a Dwight Schrute vibe, a little socially awkward. Um, yes. Uh, really likes food. Um, it's, yeah, he. What what he's committed to, he's, like what he's, he's, he's weird. He's all in on. Yes, and it is, they are weird choices. <laughs> okay. Again, I have not seen a lot. The things that uh, he has chosen to go, the things that he chooses to go all in and like, this is weird, but he, he doesn't feel a lot of shame about them. Okay. Hey, you, you be, and maybe he should feel, he he should, he should maybe feel a little more shame (laughs) because of how, not, not because of the thing he likes, but because of how defining of his personality it has become that he likes it. Yes. And, and the way he expresses it is so off-putting to so many people. Okay. Uh, and then the last ones would be then uh, Hitchcock and Scully, who I get the sense are always together. Those two, basically. Yes. So they're they are, you know, partner detectives um, have been for like 50 years on the force and are inclined to do as little work as possible because they're just not interested in doing it, even though they seem to have had a very successful career. All right. So there's uh, the the ensemble. And this one is 100% an ensemble comedy. I mean, yes, Andy Samberg was the big name for it, but in just the five or six episodes I've seen, it, it is like e- equal camera time given to the characters. They're each carrying scenes. Uh, the comedy is built off of the interactions, not, you know, the one character who's in the limelight and the, you know, the rest are a little bit of color on the side or things like that. Yeah, I would say Hitchcock and Scully are the most peripheral. And I still think they are in every episode. Yeah, I think I saw that initially they were just recurring characters and then they became regular full cast members in season two. And so, yeah, that might be the case, but they're, you know, they really are, are there as much as anybody. Okay. okay, so let's let's dip into the synopses and see how this goes. The eager Santiago excitedly announces to everyone that Captain Holt's husband has invited them to uh to the captain's birthday party and jake indicates that this invitation coming from the captain's husband is a sign that captain does not want them there uh because they will probably embarrass him with their (laughs) non-stoicness jake (laughs) takes issue with this and simultaneously spills all of the orange soda out of his cereal that's it's a good opener for for his character yeah like you 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 know who he is now (laughs) (laughs) i mean minus the the Uh, fact that he's really good as a detective you don't know that yet (laughs) Yes. Uh, Holt tells Jake that he is happy that his co-workers will be at the party, but he's not sure that his husband will get along with everyone. Jake assures Holt that he can win Kevin over by the end of the party. In preparation, Jake provides the precinct with copies of the grisliest police murders in the last several years in their precinct. (laughs) 
And Sergeant Jeffert immediately calls everyone into a meeting room to teach them how to behave appropriately at adult parties. Um, everyone believes that they don't need this instruction, but he still uh, wants to give them clear things like arrive on time. Don't wear shorts. This particular this, one receives some pushback. The the scene where he's like, okay, guys, I'm going to teach you how to be adults at a party. I just thought, what a great scene. <laughs> like, yes. Because yeah, there's so much about becoming an adult that's like, like you just kind of find it as you go. But he's like, no, I don't want you to discover what it's like to be an adult at a party. We're going in as adults. <laughs> and it's it's not like... They are young people. Like this includes Hitchcock and Scully, who are definitely the oldest people in the room. Who make the biggest mess ups too. <laughs> yes. Um, he also tells everyone, bring a bottle of wine. It's, you know, that's what you do. Um, so they gather near Holt's house before the party. Amy relishes that the neighborhood has class seeping out of every vestibule. <laughs> and uh, Scully has arrived wearing shorts because he got confused because of how many times shorts were mentioned in the meeting. <laughs> Jake arrives 35 minutes late because he had to find and purchase an $8 bottle of wine, which is the same wine that everyone else brought. <laughs> I didn't enjoy that reveal. <laughs> they, they get to the house. Holt welcomes them. Amy loudly and awkwardly compliments his choice in slacks. Uh, Holt compliments everyone for choosing appropriate footwear. So they note that he has really let his hair down for the party. Holt introduces his husband, Kevin, who hesitantly receives the wine drink and squashes any attempt at work-based conversation which is everything everyone was prepared to talk about. <laughs> um, he tells the story of how Holt and Kevin met uh, when Kevin was interviewing Holt for a story he was writing for in the New Yorker. Um, Kevin is a professor of classics at Columbia. And that's who seems to be most of the friends are professors from Columbia, all the other friends at the party. Uh, yes. And Jake is utterly unable to refer to anything remotely in that field other than the Odyssey. Which he says, uh, I, well, he makes the joke. I think he's like, I love the classics. Led Zeppelin. Uh, you know, he looks around. He's like, I know what the classics are. The Odyssey. That other book you mentioned at the beginning of this conversation. Yeah. <laughs> Something about a wolf. <laughs> yeah. Beowulf. <laughs> yeah. No, I, um, uh, I enjoyed that. So utterly out of his depth and all of his jokes aren't landing. <laughs> Also, within the first four minutes, Boyle has spilled salsa on his shirt, so Jeffert gives him his much, much too large sweater to cover it up. <laughs> he calls everyone into a huddle to remind them of how to behave themselves. Charles is only allowed to talk about food. Amy is allowed to talk about art history because she studied that in school. Scully is allowed to talk about opera. Hitchcock is not allowed to talk at all. <laughs> Rosa is told to stay with Gina to prevent her from saying anything crazy or stealing anything, which she has already done. Jake is tentatively allowed to talk about the New Yorker, she work which he claims. That's <laughs> 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 tempting me to tell you a joke from another episode, but I'll, uh, I will hold off. Um, and Jake is tentatively allowed to talk about the New Yorker article, which he read while on nitrous at the dentist. <laughs> In attempting to reference the New Yorker, he becomes committed to talking to Kevin about the article that he can only barely remember. And he also attempts to eat crab wrong. <laughs> Which is Charles finds picking up a crab leg and biting into it. Yes, like a, like a rib, basically. <laughs> yeah. It was a very painful moment uh, to watch on camera. I'm like, oh, no, no. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Charles finds a foodie guest and hits it off with her while talking about making salad from moss. Amy snoops in the kitchen to try and find points of commonality between her and Holt so that she can continue to be his favorite or attempt to be his favorite. Uh, but Jeffords confiscates her phone where she has been keeping all of her notes. Rosa introduces Gina to an abnormal psychology professor who finds her fascinating. Jake, meaning, Jake meaning cannot he's find... a professor of abnormal psychology, not he is abnormal himself. Yes. Yes. A professor of abnormal psychology. Um, Jake cannot find the copy of the New Yorker in the library, but he's determined that it was most likely be in the bathroom. So he tries to find the bathroom so he can find the article. Holt warns Jake not to try too hard to impress Kevin. And Jake can't find the magazine in the bathroom. So his search continues. Scully sings an aria to several of the guests. Hitchcock, who is standing nearby, speaks to some of the guests and inadvertently indicates that he and his work partner are romantic partners, which makes him uncomfortable. Jake tries to get an online subscription to The New Yorker. Jeffords threatens to break Jake's phone by demonstrating it with his own phone. But fortunately, he was due for an upgrade. Uh, Jake attempts to talk like, to Kevin okay. about the article. It's Terry Crews. 
for anyone who doesn't have the mental picture, he was one of the Old Spice spokespeople. And mm-hmm. he was a professional football player. He's a very large, powerful man. And he just holds up a phone and crushes it in his hand. And this seems like a cell phone. Which and, I, don't, uh, I don't know if that's real, but it might be. Oh no, I'm sure I'm sure it was a prop phone that was meant meant to be crushed, but it is a great visual to see Terry Crews just holding up this phone and crushing it in his own hand. Yes. Um so Jake has only been able to read two paragraphs of the article. Uh but in the conversation, Kevin indicates that the the magazine should be on his nightstand. And so Jake excuses himself so he can go try to find it. Uh which is in the upstairs area, which is clearly marked as off limits during the party. <laughs> Charles is hitting it off wonderfully with the other foodie by having a very gross conversation about gross sounding foods. <laughs> yeah. Gina has accumulated a dozen professors and they are all taking notes about the crazy things she says. She enjoys the attention. Charles and the food and the, uh, the other foodie start making out in the closet. <laughs> that was, that was an awkward. Amy. <laughs> yes. Uh, Amy tries to talk to Holt about their common interests based on the things that she found only to find out that her investigation was flawed and it has failed her in finding anything in common with him. She intends to investigate deeper by looking at his DVR. So she sneaks upstairs past the same sign that Jake sneaks past uh, to find a TV and, and snoop on his DVR. Uh, Jeffords follows both of them into Holt's bedroom to reprimand them, but they are all forced into the bathroom as Holt and Kevin step into the bedroom to have an argument about how Kevin is treating Holt's coworkers in the bathroom, Amy attempts to stifle sneezes from allergies to Holt's dog, who has been in the bathroom during the entire party. In the argument, Holt reveals that he made Kevin invite his co-workers because he likes them. Amy sneezes, and this reveals everything. <laughs> the next day, Jake and Amy talk about how the evening went, and Jake realizes why Kevin was opposed to inviting them in the first place. Kevin has been prejudiced towards cops since he and Holt were first together because Holt was ostracized in his precinct for both being black and for being openly gay. Kevin did not trust Holt's current co-workers to be any better. To make things up to Kevin, Jake and the rest of the precinct arrange for Holt and Kevin to have a private birthday dinner in a nice restaurant. Oh, good summary. And that's the I, end of the episode. I like this episode. They also make Gina return all of the silverware she stole. <laughs> yeah. And then one clock where he's like, this is not from my house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I thought this was a strong episode for um, showing every single character. Uh but you know, using the different setting to to get them all out of their comfort zone, which highlights like the worst aspects of their own individual characters uh, for the viewers. But then also, um, it allowed like some real uh, exposition about the captain's character, which this is only like uh, halfway through the first season. I think it was. Is that right? Um, maybe maybe a little more than half at sixteen yeah. episodes, so uh, probably towards the second half yeah, yeah. of but, the first season. But I thought it, within the comedy, uh, in a way that worked, you revealed some real depth to the captain and his relationship uh, with being a cop. Uh, in a way that that um, mm-hmm. that felt uh, like it, it wasn't like a monologue being delivered to the audience. It's like the, it got revealed through this plot that that they wove. So I I, yes. I like that. Yeah. So on to season three, episodes five, uh, which is Halloween part three. In the opener, Charles, who always wears a costume for Halloween, has decided not to wear a costume this year because everyone teases him for it. As he arrives at work, everyone is dressed in a costume. He quickly runs to his car to get his backup costume. And when he returns five minutes later, everyone is dressed normally and they tease him for wearing a costume. I think this might be the best example I've ever seen of gaslighting someone. Yeah, that's uh, if if you're unfamiliar with the concept of gaslighting, that encapsulates it, and you can show them in one, you know, uh, one minute opening skit, and it's it's hilarious to see uh, in this in this uh, the the way they play it uh, is is really funny, uh, even as the concept of gaslighting is not funny. Yes, <laughs> and and very problematic in some cases, but yeah, <laughs> in in this context, enjoyable and entertaining. Uh, Per tradition, Jake and Holt will be having a heist contest to determine who is the better detective slash genius. And this year, they are also picking teams. Jake picks Charles and Rosa, while Holt picks Terry and Gina. No one wants Hitchcock and Scully, and Amy is considered unsafe because she is dating Jake and always wants to be Holt's favorite. So neither team will accept her. (laughs) Just uh, for jumping into season three, like have they been? I I got the sense this was a new twist for the show that they were dating. Is that accurate? I think it's I think it's a season three element. Okay, but I'm not 100 percent sure. 
but they they play with some will they won't they earlier on and mm-hmm. they go with they will by season oh. three okay the the premise of the heist is whoever has stolen a crown at midnight will be the king of the precinct and the crown is in a briefcase in the interrogation room gina and charles are both put put on guard duty for the briefcase and so they're watching from the the one-way glass in in um the adjacent room jake and rosa make a plan before beginning the plan amy tries to talk to jake and jake loudly announces to her shirt that holt can't win by using her against him and he addresses her shirt because that is where camera and microphone would be in his mind gina declines charles's offer to set her up with a friend of his rosa signals to charles to release a large number of live cockroaches from his pants jake descends into the room where charles and gina are and that distracts Gina while Rosa removes the glass from a window uh, on the door to the room, jumps into the room uh, with the briefcase, with the briefcase, cuts it open, steals the crown, turns the briefcase over. So it is uh, unclear that it has been tampered with uh, jumps out of the window and replaces the glass all in under a minute. <laughs> it was, uh, that Jake was a great the cr- bit of physical comedy going on in that. Yes. Yeah. It, it was an excellent sequence. And, and good stunt work. Uh, Jake hides the crown in his filing drawer next to his desk and talks about this to Rosa. Holt and Jeffords listen to this conversation on a microphone that's been placed on his desk. <laughs> Holt explains that this was his plan so that Jake would become overconfident and vulnerable. Amy asks to speak to Holt and he agrees and dismisses, dismisses Jeffords with a complex performative handshake. Amy says that Jake's actions earlier have upset her and she wants to be on Holt's team. Holt loudly accuses Amy's shirt of harboring a camera and of Amy being a spy. Amy questions why this, this is where everyone would assume a camera would be. And Holt announces that it is because the cleavage cloaks the camera with its curves. (laughs) And then he apologizes for saying that. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Uh, Charles continues to try to set Gina up with his friend. She accuses his setup of being a setup to distract her which I thought was an excellent just line. This is not a setup. It is a setup. (laughs) You were trying to distract me. Um, Holt initiates his plan and Jeffords convinces Rosa to go downstairs. And while she is distracted, Terry Jeffords, wife and adorable six-year-old twin girls arrive and distract Jake with a photo opportunity while Holt unscrews the back of Jake's filing drawer and steals the crown and take and, and appears in the picture that, uh, that Jeffords, wife is, taking holt hides the crown in a trash can and he and jake both leave the room jake and rosa discover that the crown is no longer in the drawer holt sends jeffords to retrieve the crown but is not there holt believes jake must have stolen it back jake and holt each tell the other that he will get the crown back thereby discovering that neither has the crown (laughs) jake and rosa watch the security footage and learn that a janitor named al has taken the crown and Jake goes to Amy to find out where the janitor lives because she sends holiday cards to everybody. Holt also approaches Amy for the, the information and Jake and Holt each attempt to persuade her to give them the information. Amy provides the address to both teams who race to the location. The elevator is broken. It has a, an out of order sign on it. So both teams attempt to run up 16 flights of stairs <laughs> to the apartment. They are then told that Al is not there. He's probably on the roof smoking. So they run up the extra 15 <laughs> flights of stairs to the roof where Al turns around and reveals himself to be Amy. Amy noticed that Holt had placed a mic on Jake's desk. She tapped into the mic feed and got all of the info from Jake. She also read Holt's lips through the window to learn his plan. And using the information from both teams, she stole the crown and put an out of order sign on the working elevator to make everyone run up 31 flights of stairs. <laughs> and she won the contest. I think that was my favorite part of her plan. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> was the out of order <laughs> elevator. Yes. On a perfectly functional elevator, she put an out of order sign. So they all ran up the stairs and, and Jake threw up like five times, I think. So there you go. Oh, thank you for those summaries. Very good job. Uh, and as you noted, like the summarizing sitcoms is never quite as satisfying um, as, as watching the sitcoms necessary for how we structure this podcast mm-hmm. and the discussion we're going to have. And I think you did a great job. Um, with that so I was thinking about this again I've only seen a handful of episodes um, I was familiar with uh, the fandom that the show has and it's was always and has always been well reviewed by critics um, so so I knew it was a good show um, I very much have enjoyed the episodes I've seen but I was trying to think of like what 
is the primary source of comedy for Brooklyn Nine-Nine. So like a show like The Office, it's actually like awkwardness. <laughs> it's, it's one of the primary sources of comedy. Um, and, and yes, uh, you know, reactions to awkwardness. For a show like Frasier, it's um, a lot of it is in in the wit of the line deliveries, but then also the heart of of the, the character relationships as those ebb and throw uh, ebb and flow through through the eleven years. Um, some classics of comes. A lot of it is that is more of a, a setup punchline cycle of comedy. Um, but what do you think it is for Brooklyn Nine Nine as someone who's more well versed in it? Like where where is the show finding its comedic identity? I think I, I, I mean it definitely is from the characters. It's inside the characters' behavior and interactions. I think more than anything else. Okay. Um, and not even necessarily their response to situations, um, but their response to each other and their responses to each other's responses okay, um, so the is, is a big part of it. So, and I'm not saying any yeah, of these uh, forms of comedy are like superior to the to, to one another. Uh, it's just uh, you know shows form an identity. Um, often it kind of gets discovered through you know a season a season or two. Like where where are we as writers? and actors uh, collaborating on this and, uh, you know, with their directors, where's their collaboration finding the greatest vein of humor for, for, um, for this particular series. Um, so you, so you think it's a, a lot of it is about, is about those character interactions. Yeah. I, I think, you know, you have each of these characters who are pretty potent in, you know, what they are They're They, these are not people that you're going to run into. These are caricatures of certain character elements yeah you know, these are hyper, taken to an extreme in, in every case reality to them yeah and so it's it's posing those with and against each other um in different scenarios but mostly just with and against each other and getting those character moments it is not a like i don't know that this is a joke heavy show mm-hmm. you know it there's not a lot of setup and punchline there's not a lot of well, I'm just adding a, a brief one-liner to something to make everyone chuckle. It's a lot of just the characters being themselves, and that's that's what you get, you know. And I don't know if this is a hugely laugh out loud kind of funny, um, and it's a different dynamic because they're, you know, I'm trying to in my brain I'm comparing it to Frasier, which I've been watching a lot of recently, mm-hmm. and that has a laugh track, right? Yeah, well, and this it has a studio audience. Yeah, this is a single camera. Yeah. There's no studio audience. Um, I heard. I think it was Aaron Sorkin on a recent podcast. I heard him being, uh, you know, talking about comedy and he was talking about something like the office versus like cheers was his example. He's like, he's like with the, I'm largely saying the classic three camera or four camera sitcoms, which Frazier is one of those, um, or a lot of what's on CBS now are those kind. There's basically a proscenium arch and these are almost plays that we perform for a live audience and they are performed for a live audience. And you get some of the timing and rhythms of the comedy is also reacting to how the audience um, is taking in the comedy. So like the, you know, on Frasier, there are some long pauses before the next line is delivered. And it's because they're waiting for the audience to finish their laughter, which is what you get in a live stage performance versus single camera. Yeah. A lot of the comedy is found in editing from what I've, you know, in, in reading about how like community arrested development, the office, um, Parks and Rec, um, they, they sometimes find the com- comedic beats like the performances are there, but it's not the, what, what you finally see on the screen isn't exactly what was given in that moment if they if they tweak like okay if we just pause one second longer on this reaction it's way funnier than if we you know if we cut whereas with the classic three camera sitcoms it's like you you're often seeing an edit uh from different performances but it, it's you know fairly similar and, and and it's not nearly as much uh is being discovered in the editing room um or or created in the editing room maybe not discovered discovered might not be the right word yeah but created in the editing room yeah and i think in some ways it's a little more unique from the office and from parks and rec, because those have the mockumentary style with being single camera, they have the cutaways to interviews and things like that. Brooklyn nine, nine doesn't have that. It does cutaways to path, like flashbacks to like reality where like a character is is saying one, like what they want to present as what happened. And then it cuts back to what really happened and shows you a different. Yeah. And where you see like the half truth, that they're telling someone else, but you're now see the, you see the full truth of what really happened. Yeah. And so it doesn't have any of the cutaways to someone looking straight at the camera and acknowledging a camera. Right. The way office um, did, but within the world, when they're, when they're telling stories, they have that cutaway, which is 
you know, sort of weird because you know that the characters aren't experiencing that. Mm hmm. You know, they just need to give that context for the audience. Yeah, that's something you would so see it's, in it's, it's um, a unusual structure. Uh, Arrested Development had that kind of structure to it, more so than than a lot of traditional comedies or sitcoms on, on network TV. Yeah, and um, but unlike Arrested Development, it it doesn't have a narrator for Brooklyn Nine Nine. So yeah. it's it, it doesn't it kind of defies categorization compared to a lot of other sitcoms. I'm thinking. Yeah, you can see um, a lot of uh, antecedents, like like some. Uh, styles of comedy that they're picking up, but they're they're being processed and put together in in a different way than anything else. And even like um, setting it in uh, the police precinct, I, I think it was uh, Michael Schur. I I saw had said that he, you know our our cop shows are always dramas. What happens if we if we take this very iconic and classic American genre of the cop show and just we're going to move it from the hour long to the half hour and, and make it a comedy instead of a drama. What, what happens now? Um, so it's, it's tweet, you know, it's, it's not reinventing yeah. the wheel. It's just tweaking a lot of what's already out there. Yeah. And so I think it, in some ways it maybe is more visually similar to a, a cop show, a, a police drama um, or a procedural drama um, than it is to a typical sitcom. Mm hmm. And when you have Andre Brower in there, that just adds to to that feeling <laughs> because he was yeah uh, a face of cop shows for for the 1990s. Uh, if I'm remembering when Homicide was on, I think it was the 1990s. Yeah, yeah and so you have you know it, the comedy is I think different than a typical sitcom. Like I I can't compare it and say it's like oh it's really like this other sitcom, mm -hmm. you know. And it 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 obviously doesn't fit into the. Um, the one camera category, the same way the office and parks and rec do. Um, and it doesn't fit into a three or four camera sitcom. So yeah, I don't, I don't know quite how to describe it and identify exactly where the comedy comes from outside of it's just these, these surreal people um, interacting with each other and, <laughs> like and their behaviors are, are comedic. Yeah. Okay. Um, do you have a, a favorite character in this large ensemble and and i have to say from the episodes i've seen again uh i am impressed with how balanced the uh you know the the, the ensemble is uh, every character is there yeah um given given a fair amount of yeah it's, and not like it's a sizable plot line, ensemble that's, that's a large cast for 22 minutes yeah with um with hitchcock and scully counting as two it's nine people if you only count them as one because they are always together yeah it's it's still eight people which is that's a sizable cast for, you know, a network sitcom mm -hmm. to to have to balance. I mean, in some cases, that's twice as big as a typical yeah, cast. Yeah, like Friends had, uh, what, six, right? Was their core? Yeah. Uh, Frasier had six. It's like six seems to be kind of kind of the core as I'm like mentally running through. I mean, Cheers got pretty big, but they uh, would have episodes where some of the characters were there just to offer some commentary on what's going on. And they're just sitting there in a lot of scenes and, and they fly by with their, their very funny uh, one-liners that get you to laugh, but that, that that's their role in that episode. This feels like a little more balanced as far as what weight is being carried. Yeah. Um, but I would say generally speaking, um, Terry Jeffords is, is going to be my favorite um, <laughs> and Captain Holt. Those two in particular really stand out to me as, my favorite characters. Uh, what what about them makes makes them you know pop from what's uh, as she said like this is a great ensemble full of quirky characters all around. Uh, you know it, with characters whose uh, defining characteristics you can sum up pretty quickly because they're so exaggerated. What makes mm -hmm. Terry Jeffords and, and Captain Holt stand out? I think you know looking at the the characteristics we identified like like Jake is lazy. Um, Charles is like kind of gross in his interests. Um, Gina is, is weird and Rosa is violent. It's like, Terry is like, his descriptors aren't negative. He is kind. He is the adult. Like he, he's the straight man in a lot of cases to everyone else's goofiness. Um, sometimes he's, he's weird and goofy as well. But in most cases, I think it's, it's more likely that he's going to be the voice of reason. It's like, okay, everybody reel it in. You guys are nuts and can't behave appropriately in adult settings. Mm -hmm. Um, and his comedy comes from, I'm going to crush your phone, you know, in that kind of situation, not I am behaving inappropriately in this setting. Right. You know, I'm trying to rein everyone else yeah, in. I'm trying in to keep it now. controlled. Yeah. And, and, and I think that they structure that because he is the authority figure. You know, he is the second in command. He is the sergeant. They report, you know, to him 
and then to and then to Captain Holt. And Captain Holt, I think part of it with his authority figure um, position is he also has fewer of the the negative attributes. He is too serious, but that's not identified as a problem in the same way that like Jake's laziness is a problem. Yeah. Uh, and what I have seen, I am most impressed with Andre Brower's comedic performance because like Jake, he can be laughing at what he's doing and everything that he does. That's funny. Like that's, that's part of his character is he's very pleased with, with his humor mm-hmm. and with the jokes that he's telling. Uh, and I don't know how Andrew, Andre Brower can say some of the lines that he says in such a deadpan way and not break. Like, I don't know how many editing reels there are of him cracking up, <laughs> but, but you don't see it in his performance at all. Like he is able to hold yeah. uh, this stern look when there's chaos going on around him. And there's things that are laugh out loud funny that are happening around him and also from him like he he says yeah very funny things uh with this very straight deadpan delivery and it's amazing to watch and in the in the halloween episode when he's trying to distract jake from the fact that he's thrown the crown away he claims that he went in there to get a soda his favorite beverage and so he has to do this completely straight delivery of 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 course i love soda where he's lying Everyone and knows he's lying. Then he has to drink he's some of the it. Yeah, like it's so it's so clear that he's lying, and then he he has to drink some soda and be uncomfortable with it, but pretend that it's all natural and he's doing this, and he pretends that by playing it straight. <laughs> Which but, and so there's like so much subtlety in how he would play it straight with "Yes, I love soda" versus playing it straight with "I don't love soda, but I have to pretend that I love soda," and I pretend it by playing it straight. Oh, I, I'm glad you identify that because there was something about that that I was just charmed with the scene and that's it. Like he is lying and his performance somehow gets that through even though like the delivery is not all that different from any other delivery that he would have. But something about the way he's 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 visually portraying the, his discomfort with the soda in his mouth as he's drinking it. <laughs> uh, but trying to mask that yeah. by being straight oh, about it, it. it's it's a really great performance yeah i think i think he may be my favorite uh um and then and then like the moment where he and jeffords have a like secret clubhouse handshake mm-hmm. but he he's still just completely straight about it and both of them are yeah. in that case and it's like like why do you guys have this and why are you taking it seriously like how can you be taking this seriously well, you're doing this really goofy thing. Whereas if Jake does a goofy thing, he gets to say that it's goofy. Right. And Holt doesn't get to do that. <laughs> he gets to do the goofy thing and say, it's like, but I take this seriously mm-hmm. because that's who I am. And I think, um, and now I can't remember who said it, but it, it might've been, um, it might've been our brother, uh, John, who said that one of the great things about the balance between Jake and Holt is that if you view them both as like eight-year-old little boys and one's a goofy eight-year-old and one's a really serious eight-year-old. Right. Or one's, you know, Holt is an eight-year-old trying to be an adult. Right. And Jake is an eight-year-old trying to be a 12-year-old. Uh-huh. And and you put them together, th- like this is the show you get. I like it because there are serious kids, like the the really somber-minded kids where it's, it's yeah. kind of like... Mm, but, but it's still a kid. Right? Yeah, exactly. Oh, I li- I like that description. What are your what are your takes on the other characters with your limited exposure? Right. So the one that I feel like I've got the least read on is Rosa Diaz, but I think that's deliberate. Like every of the characters in the room seem to have the same struggle mm-hmm. I'm having yes. to get a read on with her. And so I don't think it's the, the weakness in the performance of the episode. The party episode is very light on Rosa mm-hmm. and the Halloween episode that that is Rosa. So what you got of her is accurate. Like when she does the um, stunt and but it's not a lot. Yeah. yeah. Like she's very serious and intentionally very bad. A like motorcycle leather jacket. Don't mess with me. I don't want to talk about feelings. Yeah. There's some performative uh, toughness to her character. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I do like, I don't know how much of this is my familiar with Terry Crews again as a celebrity and just enjoying his, his presence and, and like interviews I've seen with him and like learning that he really is like a, fantastic painter in real life like classically trained painter Mm -hmm. um there's um there's a painting in the first episode in the back of 
Kevin's office, mm-hmm. there's a painting of Captain Holt. And I believe that Terry Crews painted that. But the point in the show was that Terry Jeffords painted it. Oh. Yes. Well, I like I heard during his like his NFL playing days, he was never like one of the players who had the mega contracts. He was like just barely holding on to a lot of his NFL, which, by the way, like you were one of the greatest athletes in in America. If you're holding on to an NFL job, if, if you can, if you can be cut from an <laughs> yeah. NFL job, that means you had an F- yeah, NFL exactly. job. But but he, he never felt secure in his finances. And so one thing that he would do would be paint um, portraits of the richer teammates that he had. Like he, he offers services as a portrait painter. Uh, and, and uh, you know, and, and that was one of his side gigs uh, when, it, when it's feeling less secure about the, uh, that. So, so like he is a legitimate painter. And, and so, so like, there's so much about him. That's just fascinating to me that seeing the character of Terry um, have a lot of overlap with the public persona of Terry Crews. Like I, I, I wonder, I, I want to know more. Like I want to see more of Terry um, on the show. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I think he's a really satisfying character to get um, when when you get the chances to have that. Um, it's really satisfying, and they they play with his physique and his physicality um, plenty. There's you know jokes about his workouts. Um, he loves yogurt, and so there's you know I don't know how many times throughout the series that Terry Crews says Terry loves yogurt, and he'll talk into the third person sometimes. <laughs> That's great. Um, the uh, I, I mean, so much of this is is kind of I feel like I'm reiterating some of what we've said, like um, the, the Charles, like he just seems a little weird, as does Chelsea or the Gina Linetti character. Like they're weird in a way that like, I'm not, I'm not quite sure how I'm supposed to read them. Whereas the Amy Santiago character, like it's like, oh, I've I've known people like that. It's, it's like the, the weirdness of of Charles and, uh, and and Gina is like just amped up so much. It's like, mm, like you can't exist in reality. <laughs> like, OK, maybe people like that do. Yeah. But, but you wouldn't expect to see them very often. But the character like Amy Santiago, who just wants to be liked so desperately, is like, oh, I, I know you. Uh, I've known, I've known people like you. Uh, and then, um, yeah. Um, let me, let me tell you, a, a Gina, I, I'm going to tell you the, the Gina joke, okay. um, from another episode, uh, Jake calls her one time and she's in the presence of Terry and, and Captain Holt. Uh-huh. And she has her phone on, um, on her. So she, she answers the call and she answers it and says, Gina's authentic stolen police badges. What? <laughs> like that is how she answered her phone. <laughs> In the presence of her, her two superiors. <laughs> why, why would she answer that? I'm not understanding. <laughs> like, well, like, is the, is the implication that she's stealing police badges from the precinct <laughs> to to fence, yeah. or is she making a joke? Like, like she has the same kind of layers, um, in those situations where it's like, okay, she knows something's up, but is this something she's actually done, or is this something she knows she can make a joke <laughs> about, but people would question it right yeah oh she's she's weird (laughs) (laughs) okay um and then uh for me like uh every sitcom should have a hitchcock and a scully kind of character who are like the Mm -hmm. like for the simpsons it's like the b or the c list ones that fly by do their thing and then they're gone and you're just glad they were there, but they, they don't need to carry the episode. There's no need for them to be ever like carry the a plot. And if they, if yeah, they, they carry an a plot, it almost feels imbalanced when they're there, but you also would feel their absence. If they weren't there. Yeah. And I think they pull them in to have like an older dynamic that they can reference as being outdated mm-hmm. um, in some respects. And so in the, in the party scene, when Scully is singing an opera and, Hitchcock inadvertently, you know, leans into a conversation where people interpret it as, as them being a romantic couple. And he's uncomfortable with that. It's like, Oh, that's a gag from, you know, a sitcom 10 years ago. Right. Uh, But they're, they're adding some commentary about that. Right. Uh, Yeah. It's like, but these guys are from that generation. So it's, you know, here's the layer where he, his, his reaction is, uh, like he doesn't know how to get out of that situation. But, it, but, also, but also, um, there are some sitcoms, like when you watch older sitcoms where the joke is, oh, they just said a character's gay. And that's the whole joke. Like, that's it. Uh, they, they, mm-hmm. and this is it. That's not the joke. The, the joke is he's not gay, but he, he, he's misinterpreting. Like there's this misinterpretation of, 
uh, the social setting that they're in and the expectations of one group and the expectations of, uh, you know, him as he uses the term, like we've been partners for 30 years, he's in cop mode talking about partner and he's talking to people who yeah. are using a different social structure uh, for that. And that's where the comedy's coming from. So I think, that, you know, yeah, like you said, this is a yeah. joke from 10 years ago, but it's also doing some work to not just be that joke from 10 years ago or. Yeah. It's also like commenting on the facts, like, but like terminology doesn't, distinguish you know in these situations so a misunderstanding is still possible mm-hmm. and it so it is about like a misunderstanding and not a oh they called them gay yes um and which which one of them sings uh i think it's scully scully that was so unexpected and perfect that he's like an opera singer and the actor the actor um had some operatic training and so that's actually the actor singing yeah that's one of those things when they discover it in the writing where they're like we're gonna work that in somehow <laughs> and it's great yeah. Um, is that all the characters? Think, uh, we, we, we haven't said a lot about Jake. Okay. Yeah. We, which is odd because he's, which he's is, the face Which is of interesting the show. considering he was supposed to. Yeah. He's, he is like the first Bill. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He definitely is like uh, in, in the opening credits, he, he's in the main cast spot and his face is the big one on uh, at the, at the group shot at the end of the opening credits. It's him. And in all the promotional materials, I remember it was always like him with all the characters in the background behind him. Uh, like it's. I think he he's funny, but at the same time, like I don't know that I'd want to know him. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah, uh, which, yeah, which he, I wouldn't like, want to know a lot of the characters not, in this um, novel. You know, it's because they're all so exaggerated, right? Um, this isn't a portrayal of reality yeah. at all. Yeah, and and like there's a lot of his character that is how is this man child as successful as he is? Right. And I just, I haven't seen enough episodes that show his competency um, other than like saying, Oh, he's off the case. Like, but I, 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 I'd like to see a little more there, I guess. Um, But at the same time, I like, I've laughed at him. I'm not saying he's a, he's a bad character in the show. It's just, he's not the one that popped out for me. We're like, Oh, this is something that I'm going to remember a lot. Um, There's a quote from Kelsey grammar. I think he talked about when he was, when he moved from Cheers to Frasier, he said that on on Cheers, he could be this kind of broad, bright streak of color that came through the show, like just as one of the side characters, like it wasn't his show. But when he was on Frasier, he felt like he needed to be the canvas and let all the other characters be the spots of color uh, that, you know, that were going to stand out more. And maybe that's something that's happening here is, yes, he's kind of a broad character, mm-hmm. but what I'm remembering more is like the... Uh, Andre Brower performance and uh, you know some of these other performances that can be uh, I I guess like a a little brighter because they're not carrying the show and he even though I said this is a huge ensemble I think I think it is still geared around him like most of the cold opens I've seen start at his desk right like that's how we're getting oriented into this world is through him as the protagonist yeah and a lot of the I mean the the episodes that we were dealing with didn't have um, a mystery, a crime, you know, momentum. Yeah. But they didn't have a momentum that needed to be generated in any particular direction because, you know, it's a birthday party. The momentum's there. It's, it's automatic. Um, and nobody had to really propel anything. And the same for the, the heist, it's a tradition, but especially early on, he is propelling a lot of what is going to be the a plot of, um, of the episode. He is, going to be in conflict with Holt. And so we are following that conflict. Okay. Um, or he is instigating something. We're following, you know, his efforts to solve a case. And these episodes don't, don't feature that um, very heavily. No, not, I, but there are other episodes where, um, where you do see his, his actions being the impetus that everyone else has to respond to. Uh, yeah. And like by the, the one that was from the third season, like that relationship between Peralta and, and the captain felt much more, uh, of a camaraderie than what I'd seen, uh, you know, walk out of the trouble watching the first few episodes and then watching another season one episode. Like there was still a, a, mm-hmm. a an, uh, a competition or an antagonism. I mean, I guess the competition is there in that in the, in the Halloween episode, competition is not gone, but it just felt more like peers, uh, in the third season. Uh, so I'm assuming some level of that early show drive is going to be Jake trying to force the captain to like him or respect him as a detective like that. Some of that has passed by season three. Yeah. And you get to a point where, okay, now Jake is confident that 
they are friends or or you know respect respectful enough with each other um that it it does change the dynamic uh all right any other final thoughts on brooklyn 99 nope uh if if any listeners are looking to sample the show to see if this is something that that is to to their taste are there any other like episodes that stand out to you I think the Halloween episodes are generally strong, um, but it's hard to, I haven't watched it thoroughly mm-hmm. in a while. Oh, and those ones so are it's hard to point Halloween, out. so that's helpful. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so it's, I, nothing comes to mind that's like, oh, this is fundamental. This is the core of the show. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one of the reasons that we wanted to identify a few different episodes for this recording. So we could get a, a broad sense of the characters. Um, but really it's, a very bingeable show. And I think part of that comes from being used to 90 or sorry, 60 minutes for procedural mm-hmm. and getting 22 minutes is short. Yeah. <laughs> you know, when it comes to a cop show. And so you kind of blend them together. And so I, I think, you know, my experience has mostly been with binging it. And, and so things blend together and elements of different episodes connects. And, and because it's so much of just the characters, you just spend time with the characters and that's where the jokes come from. You know, you're going to laugh at, a few different things, but not really remember where it comes from um, as an episode. And I know um, before I'd ever watched a single episode of the show, I had seen um, a whole like vignettes or scenes from the show that had been cut out and, you know, people were posting them on Facebook or Twitter. Uh, like there's the Backstreet Boy. I'm assuming it's a cold open or maybe it's, it's from a one. Yes. Has, uh, yeah, that's from, that's from a cold yeah. open. Uh, and maybe we can post that link uh, in the Facebook page if we remember. And if we've forgotten listeners, someone if, please go and post that. Cause it is a very funny. <laughs> um, cold yeah. Open and and I think that might be the best cold open that they, that they have. But uh, the, like I said, I've seen other scenes that are like that, where like it's it's been parsed apart. That without knowing the characters, I still see the comedy. You know that that's there. Um, and so, listeners, if you have any favorites of those scenes, feel free to post them on the Facebook page underneath uh, this episode when this one posts. I think that's going to wrap up this episode. So thank you for joining us. For show notes and links to all of the other great Dueling Genre shows, go to DuelingGenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in your podcast app of choice, and please leave us a review. That really helps us out. We would like to thank Nick English, who designed our logo, and Scott Tofty, who composed our theme music. If you enjoyed this episode, you might want to go check out episode number 21, when we talked about I Love Lucy. I think that's the first sitcom that we covered on this podcast. Um, did you do Mary Tyler Moore before that? Ooh, maybe those, those were probably the first two somewhere in there. So yeah, maybe Mary Tyler Moore was a little bit. Boring. Yeah. Uh, it's, we've done over 200 episodes. It's starting to run together. Uh, you might also want to go check out episode number 64. When we talked about Frasier, you can suggest stories or characters for us to discuss or give us any comments or corrections by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com. We're also on Twitter. You can follow at protagonistpod and at Jadorowski. And our producer, Andrew is at Diz Minute. And our Facebook fan page is facebook.com slash protagonistpodcast. We enjoy our conversations there with listeners and would love for you to say hello anytime. If you would like to support the show financially, you can buy a topic for us to discuss or show your appreciation with a monetary donation by going to patreon.com slash protagonist. Thank you again for listening, and we will be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So long. When did you put the uh, the things in? Because as soon as you started reading the outro, I was like, oh, no, we didn't talk about. I was like a ninja during our discussion. I went and did it. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was during your summer, I was scanning through. I'm like, oh, sitcom, sitcom.